0: This great relationship that I've managed to, to achieve with G-Vine and with Boutique Brands is a sense that they understand that my day job is very much important to me, but the work I do outside of that is what makes me so good at what I do.
1: Welcome to the Lush Life Podcast. I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred, and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures, how to make the perfect old-fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. G-Vine Gin calls itself traditionally unconventional, and that could also describe our guest today, Jamie Campbell, brand ambassador for G-Vine Gin. He has mastered the work-life balance in ways that I have never seen, and his desire to want to give something back is deserving of all of our respect. So how did it all begin?
0: I basically started waiting tables to a degree, but as a busboy, I uh, kind of just fell into it. a lot of my family have been involved in the industry, um, either as sort of wannabe winemakers in the, French, um, in the French country itself. So my half of my family were French. My mother is French and all of the family are from the Loire Valley. So um, I was very much involved in that industry, grew up with a love of wine, food, cheese, etc. And it was, I would kind of say, predestined that I would probably work in the industry. Um, So when I got to about 15, I started doing work placements um, and went out to Lille for a few weeks.
1: Now, were you living in France? Were you living Uh, in England? So
0: during my my upbringing, um, my parents worked sort of five jobs between them. So I would um, go to my grandparents, my grandmother's uh, during the summer, and over Christmas we'd often spend a lot of time there. So I'd spend probably about, in total, four or five trips to um, to France each year, growing up.
1: But where was your home here?
0: It was in London, so I was actually born in Camden, okay. grew up in Islington, and then gradually moved further and further out. Because so that is
1: not a London accent. It's
0: not, no. I've kind of weaned myself off uh-huh. a small amount. Um, uh-huh. I've spent the past eight years in and out of the Cotswolds,
1: okay.
0: um, and in and out of America, actually. So... Um, Yeah, it's kind of a a melange of accents, if you like. A
1: melange, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have
0: to give homage to the French French part of me. Um, But growing up, I would spend a lot of time in and out of France um, and naturally grew up with a, I would say, almost dangerous love of food and drink, both alcoholic and non. Um, So for me, it was always a passion I had. And I, growing up, I always wanted to see how that passion could relate into something that I could make a living from.
1: And now with a French mother,
0: mm.
1: were you eating French food at home? Yes, or were you very yeah. English? No, it
0: was um, very much uh, a solid mix, I would say, like a 50-50 So split. wine was
1: always on the table?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I probably had my first sip at six months. Right. So yeah, um, it kept me sleeping, I suppose. It was great for my parents. Um, but yeah, that's sort of where my love came from, if you like. Um, and... Through that upbringing, I wanted to see how I could kind of translate that passion, that I would say understanding, if you like, um, into a career. Um, when I was studying here in, in the UK, throughout GCSEs and A levels, etc., I never really knew what I wanted to be in terms of the industry, but I always knew that I would be working within the industry, and I had originally always thought that would be as a chef. So I studied catering in uh, in school and in college and uh, went to university in the Cotswolds in Gloucestershire um, and studied hospitality management. So I really wanted to get a solid background mm. in the industry, both from a a physical standpoint and actually working industry um, by doing placements and trainings, et cetera, but also from... Um, a perspective in terms of back of house and how the actual processes and, and businesses run. So with regards to you know, financial audits, etc., etc.
1: But always thinking behind the scenes as a chef.
0: But always thinking in terms of one day I want to own my own business. Okay. Um, that was always the direction that I initially took. Um, so first off, it started out as wanting to open my own hotel. Um, I started working in hotels as a concierge and as a front of house um, and decided that wasn't quite what I wanted what I expected so then it became I I sort of I started experimenting more with food if you like and actually cooking more food Um, and through my placements in in France and, and everything else I kind of I wanted to see how I could not so much add to the cuisine of France or of any country by any means but I certainly wanted to see how I could fit into that sort of demographic if you like Um, so I really wanted to sort of cut my chops as a chef. Um, but again, with me, I will start something and I'll give it my all, but if it doesn't work out, I can quite quickly change into a different line, um, or a different area of the industry. So as soon as I started really getting into the chefing side of things, um, I craved more of a social interaction.
1: Because that's a lot of pressure as well to go into that, you know, it's, it's France. Exactly,
0: and I think that was maybe at the age that I, I started doing it, and um, with maybe some naivety, if you like, I thought it would be easier than it was. How old were you? Uh, I was about 15 at that time. Oh gosh, you
1: were really, really young. <laughs> so
0: yeah, yeah, I was, I was still studying, and I was doing, um, as I said, I did a placement in Lille at mm-hmm. a, a small little bistro, um, and I basically kind of jumped from the department to department within this time as like a training session. Mm-hmm. Um and when I got into the kitchen, I loved it and really sort of fell in love with the high intensity and the high pressure sort of environment that it was. But when I came back to the UK after that and tried to replicate the experience, um, it didn't quite pan out the way okay. I thought it would. Um, so, I, And also, as I said, I crave that social interaction that you don't really get in the kitchen. So I then sort of continued with that style of things and, and that side of it. Um, Continued learning about food, uh, but more so the science behind food um, and how flavours work and how flavour profiles really mix together and Mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. And then went to university, as I said, in in the Cotswolds in in Cheltenham and Gloucestershire uh, to study hospitality management. Because by this point, I'd moved away from wanting to be a chef and more so into wanting to manage um, hospitality ventures so bars, restaurants, casinos, Mm -hmm. etc.
1: And you're still so young at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I knew... I would say very much so from a young age that I wanted to, um, I wouldn't say put my stamp on, but certainly have quite an influence, um, and and really just be able to cover all, all of my bases. So by going to university and and actually learning from a degree standpoint, the workings of those businesses, Mm -hmm. I knew that when I graduated, I would have both the front of house and the back of house knowledge to get involved Mm -hmm. in the industry uh, on a more professional level, a more personal level as well, actually. Um, so for me, it was very much learn everything that I can as early as possible, because I want to know that when I really get into the industry, I hit the ground running.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that was kind of the direction I took and the thought process that I had. Um,
1: so you have your degree. Yes, you're ready to go. Where yeah. do you go from there?
0: Uh, well, whilst I was studying, I started working at a at a restaurant in, in Cheltenham called The Daffodil, um, which was originally an old 1920s cinema. So an absolutely stunning venue, beautiful, beautiful venue. Um, It is all art deco and had actually been redesigned by Lawrence Willem Bowen. Um, So when I started there, I started basically just uh, a a mix of waiting tables and running drinks for the bar. Um, and loved it. That was really, I would say, my first proper um, foray into how a high volume, high expectation restaurant works it had two resets at the time um, had a fantastic chef team behind it was very prestigious in the area and it was certainly one of those destination restaurants where people go to for you know special occasions mm-hmm. etc we do a lot of weddings a lot of events so by working there I really had a great introduction into how hospitality should be done and how it should be done right and for me that's what I, I loved about the place I ended up actually staying there on and off for about four four and a half years Um, eventually worked my way up from running those drinks to making them to then creating them and actually managing the bar itself Um, and for me that was where my love of cocktails really came into it so I kind of found my way drifting from the kitchen onto the floor uh, and then into the bar if you like so it was quite, uh, I'd say natural Mm -hmm. but to a degree the progression in it was something that I really loved seeing because I went from working with flavours in the kitchen to waiting tables where I got bored of having no creative input whatsoever to then working back onto the bar where you start to mix flavours again and I think that's why that's why I really craved was that creative element but the personability that comes with it as well by being able to interact and socialise with the with the guest
1: Were you able to be as creative as you wanted Absolutely.
0: there? Absolutely by the time um, actually by the, especially by the time I was able to take over as manager um, we had essentially free reign of the bar itself and how to create the menus so by the time I I got into the managerial position of the bar. The the bar and the creation of the menu was entirely my own and, and my team's. So by that point we were working on some really I would say for especially for that time and for for that area some experimental style cocktails. So working with reductions and uh, you know different bit- bitters and syrups which back then were you know state of the mm. art. So it wasn't I mean Cheltenham I would say was very much a, a few years behind London uh, at that time in terms of the cocktail scene. So uh, the Daffodil at the time was very much like pushing boundaries in terms of what we were doing and, and what was happening in industry in that area so that's where I would say my passion really blossomed um and grew so yeah that's, that was the start if you like mm-hmm. the, or the proper start of my full-time career in the industry
1: and where called next
0: so um as I said I was working there sort of part-time uh, initially whilst I was studying. Um, all my studies i did a four-year degree and mm-hmm. one of those years was spent in industry so i went out to the states to south carolina for six months um, to work at the sea pine resort in hilton head island um, went out there as an intern that was part of my degree was to get some on the ground experience to put all of the um the university degree into practice mm-hmm. if you like so i was out there for six months and absolutely loved it beautiful beautiful place
1: Were you at the bar yet?
0: No. By this point, I was still working more within the hotel side Mm -hmm. of things. Uh, So it was front of house and concierge services, etc. But I loved the American hospitality, especially in the south down there.
1: What did you find different?
0: I hadn't had a chance really to see much of America. Um, This was actually really my first proper time, if not my first time. Yeah, it was my first time in the States. But I had always heard up until that point, of the sort of north south divide in terms of (laughs) hospitality and you know new york versus the south etc so um when i got there it was very much with my accent being english um people were just so interested in in what brought me out they must have loved you (laughs) that also helped i think a small amount um but they were very much like interested in what a kid from london is doing in this tiny Mm. little island in south carolina um, and to have even though
1: it's a very sophisticated island most definitely yes. most definitely mm-hmm. you know
0: the there is certainly a level of um, appreciation for for food and drink and everything else in, in that area but they were still very much interested in, in, in why I was there and for me this was very much the first time I'd really moved away from home besides going to university mm-hmm. and moved out of the country uh, for any, any extended period of time so to be out there and have people um, interested and also Welcoming, I think, was the most important thing. Um, you know, I had guests that I would check in on a Friday evening and would check out on the Monday or Tuesday morning. But because I'd had such an interaction with them, they were very open and very welcoming into their own homes. So I had invitations to go and visit people in Texas and Vegas and California. And at this point I was I mean, I was twenty years old. Just yeah, just turned twenty years old. So
1: have you taken up those invitations?
0: Uh, I haven't, no. But I still have all of the letters and everything else mm-hmm. that were written to me, which for me was, I think, the most important thing mm-hmm. was people I'd never met and to a degree had served. And I think that's what I'd come used to is up until this point, I'd always served people if, you know, to use that colloquialism. So to, to be in that situation where I'm providing people with a service, but they're reciprocating that with an open offer to their homes.
1: And appreciation.
0: Absolutely. It mm-hmm. really meant a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And it really meant that I felt appreciated for what I was doing and Mm -hmm. I think that's where again my love for the industry really started to cement itself Um,
1: but isn't it dangerous if you start to expect that?
0: to a degree Mm -hmm. but I think at the same time for me that cemented in my mind the level of service that I wanted to provide moving Uh forward because I wanted to know that obviously to some degree I was doing something right to get that Mm -hmm. level of appreciation from the guest and I never wanted to sway from that I always wanted to provide that next level of service that would open the potential for them to want me to you know to, to continue uh, to provide that basically mm-hmm. so for me it was dangerous to a degree to expect that level of appreciation from a guest but i knew that i would work to provide the service so that that expectation wasn't uh shall we say out of order if you like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i always wanted to make sure that i was doing the best and very much being the best at everything i could put my my work to so yeah
1: so it's, you came uh, back with these great came, expectations, yeah,
0: as we say. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I came, came back and uh, went back to the Daffodil to finish out the six-month placement. Mm-hmm. It was a 12-month placement that I had to do. So I came back to the Daffodil to, to finish that out. And um, in the last year, I basically went into a full-time role at the Daffodil whilst finishing my degree. When I graduated, um, well, in that last year, I kind of fell out of love if you like with university and actually studying because by this point I thought I've got a lot of on the ground experience and everything I'm learning now is almost a repetition of the things that I've learned in person and in practice so my last year at university was very much a let's get it done let's get it over with I want to jump back into the saddle and I really want to get back into into the industry like full time working properly and actually put into use everything that I've learned so far so, the last year was um, kind of a formality. Mm-hmm. Um, I graduated and I didn't do too badly by any means. Um, so, I came out of university with a, a 2 1 degree.
1: I was going to say we're not going to ask you to what you got. <laughs> well, was, but you, you revealed it. It was,
0: it was a, 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 a two-one, so it wasn't. It good. wasn't terrible. I, There's was I, much worse. There are, and I yeah. could have pushed myself to get a first, but at that point, I was focusing on actually working as mm-hmm. opposed to studying. So mm-hmm. but I came out with a degree um, in hospitality. And I'm sure no Imagine. one
1: asks you now what you got. Fortunately, no, right? no.
0: I mean, it, when you hand them a drink, exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, precisely. No one's that interested. So it's, it's good. It serves me. It serves me well, and it served me well at that time as well. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I, I graduated university and continued working at the Daffodil for a further year or so, actually.
1: And did you hear London calling? Or were there other places after that? I
0: had never really, despite coming from and growing up in the London area, I'd never really expected to come back. Um, I kind of saw Cheltenham as my new home and as my new stomping ground for for what I wanted to do in the industry. Um, And after working at the Daffodil for so long and really running the bar there for so long, my next phase, if you like, was... To open my own place in the area Um, I'd worked with a lot of really great bartenders Some great floor staff, some great chefs And I wanted to be able to take all of that knowledge that I'd had And turn it into something that would benefit me And benefit the industry by really consolidating all that experience And that knowledge into one place where we could be the best, if you like Mm -hmm. Um, So I worked on basically getting to know other bars and restaurants in the area
1: I don't know Cheltenham that well. No, I mean, Um, it's
0: it's very small, but mm -hmm. in terms of restaurants and bars per square footage, if you like, it's very, very compact. There are restaurants and bars every couple of yards, Mm -hmm. um, some of which are chain restaurants, as there needs to be, but there are a huge number of independents, um, which is great for a small town of, at the time, 120,000 people um, to have that much on your doorstep on offer. So... I was very spoiled for choice, if you like, in mm-hmm. terms of like increasing my palate and sort of progressing my palate in terms of food and drink. So, um, yeah, I kind of I wanted to see what else was out there and would do sort of a bit of a, a recce. you know, would go around all these different bars and restaurants and see how, how the chefs are working on their food and, and mm-hmm. what they're doing and and how they're playing with flavors and, and presentation.
1: And did so, you think there was a space for your vision?
0: Yeah, for for me, it, it was. Uh, it was a bar that would provide table service only and very much what has come to be the norm, I would say, now in terms of a small, intimate venue of 30, maybe 40 people at maximum in terms of capacity. You know, Two or three bartenders behind the bar, two or three waiting staff on the floor, and that's very much all you needed. A small, very limited food menu, but something that can be put together by any member of the staff. Um, and then just really strong, solid drinks with a classical emphasis, but playing on that more experimental side of things that was coming to be the norm or coming to be, not so much expected, but certainly understood more mm-hmm. by by the population. Um, but that never actually transpired. Oh. Um, I then was made redundant from the daffodil at that point. So um, the daffodil closed. It came into some financial difficulty after, at the time, 18 years. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, after 18 years of, of being a restaurant and very much um, an institution in the Cheltenham Sort of hospitality community, mm-hmm. um, the place went, went bust. Um, so myself and around about thirty-five other members of staff are made redundant, and I had to be the one to make that call and basically open up on a Friday morning and call my staff and the other members of the other teams, the heads of department, and say that we're really sorry, but there's nowhere for you to turn up to work today. Um, collect your stuff, and unfortunately, and they
1: don't teach you this in, in no. university, and that
0: was. I would say the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my 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 lifetime as a as someone in this industry was having given all of basically everything of myself and knowing that every other member of staff in that place was doing the same to then turn around and have it all just right. sort of stripped away from you in the smallest amount of space of time. So that was very much one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was have that experience, um, which sort of led into how I'm doing what I'm doing now. I basically said from that point forward that I never want to work for anyone else again um, I want to go out on my own and I only want to be responsible and I only want to be I want to, I only want to answer to myself um, I never want to have anyone else responsible for my paycheck or my livelihood mm. because by this point I'd just bought a house um, for my mother um, and I said the last thing I ever want is to have anyone else potentially detriment my livelihood and, and what I've worked hard to achieve so I set out by myself as a freelance consultant and bartender, um, and that's what I've been doing for the past three years or so, two three years, and so I've come on board with this with this new venture of vine
1: And did you move to London to do this? No,
0: I stayed in the you area. Stayed. Mm-hmm. I stayed in the area, um, and last year I uh, worked on an opening for a new Japanese restaurant. And
1: cool. I oh, hold on, how many years ago was this?
0: So this was uh, December of last year.
1: Oh, so really recent.
0: So quite recently um when was it December yeah so it was from from October we started the project and that project that I was on board with finished in December mm. so uh so yeah it was very much a recent thing that I really got into the the consultancy side of things up until that point I'd done freelance bartending some freelance events um you know, like in-home hospitality events, birthday mm-hmm. parties, etc. And that's sort of how I was making a living by that But point. you
1: put your card out as a consultant yeah, and absolutely. people came.
0: Yeah, they did. And called. Um, fortunately, after spending so many years in the industry in Cheltenham, what with being such a close-knit community, mm-hmm. um, there were people who knew me and I knew them. And as soon as I sort of started saying, look, I'm available for, for consults, then uh, I was very fortunate to, to have people come asking me. So I worked with a... My first real big project, if you like, was reopening the daffodil itself when new investors came mm-hmm. in. So I did two months with them, reopened the daffodil, um, and then went to America. For, so it's open, it's so
1: open it's now. it's back open oh, again, great. under
0: new ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was the same chef team from before. Um, some of the bar staff remain the same, as do some of the waiting staff. So fortunately, there's enough people in there that... Knew what it was like beforehand and continued to upkeep that level of service that made it so great to begin with. So, uh, so yeah, that's that. But you felt
1: the pull to the US.
0: So actually, it's throughout all of my time working in the industry, um, as a lot of people will know, it can be quite uh, overwhelming. Um, There's a lot of uh, temptation, if you like, something which I never succumb to. But the the lifestyle associated to working in the hospitality industry, I think a lot of people know, kind of that it can be quite Um, quite overwhelming can very much become quite a dangerous environment if you like Um, so I've always wanted to balance that lifestyle out with something that separates me from from that world Um, so I started working with children with disabilities uh, and this goes back about four years ago now Um, so I started working with kids with disabilities and loved that side of it and being able to give a little bit of something back but also be able to as I said balance out my own life mm-hmm. by working every hour under the sun but then also being able to have a bit of downtime and and, and something that grounds me a little bit again so I started working with kids with disabilities and um, in I don't know, we're going back to April of last year um, I was very lucky to be chosen to go out to the states to work at a summer camp very much like Camp America basically so I went out to a camp in Pennsylvania in the Pocono Mountains to look after um, a kid of 12 years old who has a very severe rare form of muscular dystrophy so I only wanted to go out there to work with him and managed to do that for the summer last year and again the year just gone, so the summer just gone of 2017 Um, and that's where managed to get that separation again from from what I was doing and and have a summer off if you like, it's the first real time I'd ever taken a summer off and gone on vacation for myself Um, but I was able to do it working with Ollie, um, who's an incredible kid, Um, absolutely amazing Like his mindset and his outlook on life very much provided motivation for me in terms of what I want to do when Mm -hmm. I came back, so uh, worked with him for the summer, came back in September of last year and then worked with a MasterChef finalist from uh, 20 what are we now, so it would have been 2012 if I'm not mistaken Yeah, 2012, 2012. so um, a gentleman called Andrew Kojima who was a master finders, made it all the way to the finals and we basically got introduced through a, a wine supplier that I used to use at the Daffodil and he we were put in touch and, said, and he said to me, look I'm basically opening the restaurant and I'd like some help to get the front of house aspect up and running um, it's not, never anything that I've really done before and I've heard that you've worked at various places, would you be interested? At this point I was very much trying to focus on that consultancy side mm-hmm. of things, so I said yeah absolutely, um, we did a, a three month consult managed to get the place open and at the time we were billing it as a pop up to sort of gauge the market and see where it would sit and how it would be reciprocated sort of how it would be um, received and it went fantastically well the concept was small Japanese plates served in a tapas style um, with the emphasis on the food and the presentation as opposed to sort of people's perception of what Japanese food should be. So you know, at the time, sushi was having a huge boom, well, in fact, it still is. Mm-hmm. But um, Koj, Andrew Kojima, very much wanted to focus on traditional Japanese plates that you would find in these. Little bars and restaurants in Tokyo, you know, down all of the back alleys. So by putting together small plates and serving it as a tapas style, it became a very um, sociable restaurant. And that was the idea: was to have groups of friends come in and spend a few hours sat at the table and just order from the menu consistently, like keep on ordering from it. You know, you do a round of six plates, finish those off, and get a round of something else, and and try it that way. And I loved that mentality um, of of dining, something that's very relaxed, but still very well done, if you like, in the sense that the food is great, you know, the serves and the flavours and the the presentation was fantastic. And I tried to balance it out by creating a cocktail menu that would showcase Japanese flavours, um, but with uh, an English sort of interpretation that would make it approachable for, for the consumer. So it worked on, you know, using Japanese whiskies, which were at the time booming, still are booming. Um and a whole host of different sort of flavour profiles and things like that to, to complement the food, and it went really well. We as said initially started as a, a pop up sort of um, approach to gauge the market, went to a crowdfunding platform um, and managed to raise fifty five thousand pound to turn it into a permanent venture. Um, I finished my consultation by that point that was my job done basically managed to get into that stage um, which I was very happy about and I could quite quickly see how the restaurant would progress so I then went back to the States for Christmas of last year so Christmas 2016 just for a holiday so I went out to Denver which again, a great city for food and drink You know the the industry there is it's a city I love, actually, because it's still quite industrial in the way that it's made up and the way that it looks, but there are breweries and restaurants on every street corner. So for someone with such a gastronomic sort of interest as what well, I mm-hmm. have, it was fantastic to really see how these places work and you know, go to these breweries where it might be a tiny, tiny place, but they're still making 10, 12 of their own beers in, in their own backyard sort of thing. Um, and I love that, that experience of being able to try a little bit of everything. Um, so
1: I guess, how did G-Vine come calling?
0: Well, basically I came back at Christmas, went back to CODGE um to see them through the the new phase of actually being a permanent fixture. Uh finished that project, went to open a cocktail bar in the area with um with a friend of mine who I'd never previously worked with but we'd always worked around the same people in the industry, um and did another two month consult for him to get him open and then went back to America for the summer to work with Ollie again to work with this uh with this child again. Um, just before I left to go to the States, I was looking at, right, you know, I need to really get settled again in the industry as opposed to keep jumping in and out. And I wanted to have something with a bit more continuity to it. So I started looking at what was available and saw an advert that g were advertising for a brand, brand ambassador position. And when I looked at the the job requirements, if you like, um, I quite quickly saw just how much everything that I'd done up until that point had really led me in this direction almost well, I'd certainly say subconsciously um, you know if I, if I remember correctly the advert wanted a hospitality graduate someone French or at least French speaking someone who had X amount of years in the industry as both a bartender and working within trade um, but also someone who had quite a healthy work-life balance and that was basically the the advert that was out there and I was quite quickly looking through it and going hey, it said
1: jamie campbell apply
0: absolutely <laughs> and and that for me it was a huge eye-opener i, I kind of looked at it and i went everything i've done up until now has almost led me to this um in the sense that all of the work that i've put in and all of the jumping around that i've done you know from department to department from country to country has really sort of like just put it so that this adver- advertisement jumps out on me and screams my name so i applied and within 10 minutes had a call back and said look your CV looks exactly what we're after. Um, let's put together a Skype interview. Um, so did that. Did the Skype interview, met with um, Boutique Brands, which is the UK importer for Gvine, who I work in partnership with, or sort of it's a split um, split partnership between, I work for Boutique Brands and as a G-Vine ambassador. Um, so mm-hmm. I met with the CEO and COO of Boutique Brands in London and said straight off the bat to them, look, I'm going back out to the States for the summer. But I am very much interested in this position. It's everything that I've wanted to do without really knowing that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, and I said, okay, well, we appreciate what it is that you're going out to the States to do um, in terms of the, the, the work that, it is that you do out there. So we'll keep the position on hold for you until you get back.
1: It's fantastic.
0: And for me, that was the final selling point, if you mm. like, is that someone would understand my obligation to someone that they've never met but to someone who's very much dependent on me and my help when he's at this camp in, in the Pocono mountains. And I think that was the start of this great relationship that I've managed to, to achieve with G and with boutique brands is a sense that they understand that my day job is very much important to me, but the work I do outside of that is what makes me so good at what I do because it gives me that, that grounding to really focus on, on the work when I'm here, but also have that separation so that I don't burn out. Um, so they put the position on hold, I came back from the States in September, and the day after I landed, I got an email saying, look, the job's yours, you can start whenever.
1: Had they had a brand ambassador before?
0: As far as I'm aware, they, they'd had brand ambassadors, but nothing as full-time as, as what I am now, and um, nothing that is, I mean, I may be speaking out of turn, but nothing that I think is as involved in the day-to-day running of, of how Gvine operates in the UK.
1: How long has Gvine been on the market?
0: so it's it's been a brand for 10 years mm-hmm. we've just celebrated 10 years this year um as a gin um boutique brands took the product on six years ago to import it into the uk and that's where the sales in the uk really started to to increase and skyrocket so boutique brands acts as the uk importer but the sort of the management agency here in the uk as well um and it's when chief i came on board with that that sort of the harmony kind of started and the relationship really worked mm-hmm. to increase the presence that g has in the UK.
1: Now, it's the number one premium gin sold in Spain, and indeed. we know that the Spanish drink a whole lot of gin. They do. And so obviously it has a reputation already. Yes. So where do you fit into that? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, it's quite funny, actually. And it's certainly something that I've noticed since coming on board in the past, we're going into four months now with the brand, um, is that despite having such a presence in the Spanish market, it's still relatively unknown if you like in in the UK market and even in the French market um, I still speak to a lot of French people both in and out of France and they said, oh we've, we've never heard of it and I think part of that is that English people up until now haven't associated France with gin you know gin is very much an English product in their mind and French people don't drink gin they stick to what they love which is wine and cognac as a second if you like um, but that's actually where G-Vine really plays into that because it's made from the cognac grape. Um, so it's it's able to provide that smooth base that French people love in their cognac. Um, but do it in distilled still products. I mean I guess again. if I didn't know
1: about Chi Vine, yeah. which I do, I guess If someone said to me, oh, it's a gin made from a grape spirit, you would kind of be confused because isn't it supposed to be wheat? And then people don't realize that it can be anything.
0: Exactly. As long
1: as it's got junipers.
0: Exactly. And that's it. And that's actually the conversation I have, I would say probably on a daily basis at the moment. (laughs) Um, We're very fortunate to be in the Harvey Nichols stores um, with a a gift box that we're doing in the the run-up to Christmas. And I've just been doing tastings at their Knightsbridge and Bristol stores the weekend just gone. And I would say every fifth or sixth person that I spoke to would like, oh, how can it be a gin if it's made from grapes? It doesn't not have to be made from juniper. And actually, you know, the Mm. classification for gin is anything of agricultural origin that's been distilled and has juniper as a predominant botanical. So when you start to break it down that way, actually you can understand and, and start to explain and really sort of give out that knowledge and share that knowledge of it is a gin. It's just a gin done in a traditionally unconventional way. Um, which is the entire tagline for g and, in fact, the Maison Vivre portfolio.
1: I was going to say, you could definitely play on that. <laughs> yes, and,
0: and we do so. We, we definitely do so. We, the idea behind it is that it's not so much trying to um, change the way that things have been done. It's almost going back to how things used to be done. So uh, I was very fortunate to be in Cognac to see the distillery and the Maison Vivre house a few weeks ago and spoke to Jean-Sebastien, the owner, and, and master distiller behind G. Vine and the Maison Vert sort of company, that houses itself and he showed me a bottle of what's called 1495 gin and it's a gin that he's recreated if you like from a recipe that was found in some archive um, and actually the recipe calls for um, a, a a gin product if you like, what would have been Geneva at the time from 1495, it's a recipe from 1495 that specifies that if you're going to make this liquid properly and if you're going to make it taste better use a grape based product as the basis for, for this spirit if you like and that's
1: was this a French recipe?
0: It uh, was a Dutch recipe. It was a Dutch recipe. Dutch recipe where Geneva gin right. came from.
1: Sorry, yes, you did say that. Yeah.
0: No, 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 <laughs> no. but I mean it's it's funny because I, I was
1: going to say it's a French recipe of course. They <laughs> start right with the grapes, yeah. right?
0: But but that's actually and that's where it, where it came from. The sort of the um, the wars in 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 the Netherlands. Basically what happened was a divide between the north and the south wherein grain became more popular. Further down because mm-hmm. it was more accessible, and the grapes sort of lost out what would have been their market share beforehand. Um, so, the recipe basically shows that gin was traditionally made from grape, um, or should be made from grape mm-hmm. if it's to mm-hmm. be a a really um, sort of a more sophisticated product. Um, and so, for me, like seeing all of that in cognac itself and understanding that's where the process came from, and that's. Almost the justification behind using grape as as a base spirit is that it's a sophisticated um, base for a gin that is a sophisticated gin. You know, it's something that is very smooth and rounded, and really, really approachable on the on the palate. So it's got a really great mouthfeel for it. Um, and I would say, as a result, that gin base or that grape base is used entirely for that to bring back some of that. Um, sophistication to the category a little bit.
1: So. Well, with your experience creating cocktails, mm. was there one thing that you said, I, I want to mix? You know, I yeah. have this gin. What yeah. do I, what cocktail well, that's, do I want to first mix with
0: it? That's the great thing with G Vine is because there are two expressions, we have the flochizant and the newison, which we're in the process of sort of rejigging a little bit as well. And the flochizant, as soon as I tried it, I was like, no, that's a gin and tonic gin every day. It just works so fantastically mm-hmm. with tonic. It's very floral, light, and sort of it's very crisp, and you know, I was able to try it in cognac at 24 degrees on a you know middle of September day. Actually, it was October, even it was 24 degrees in cognac, and I was like, No, this is like bliss. This is it, works fantastically. This is its home, you know, very much its home. Um, but in trying the nuisance, which is a bigger, bolder, spicier style, I was like, That is cocktail application for any classic drink, you know, any Negroni or Martinez, straight martinis, for example, because it's got such a strong base. And such a an identifiable base as well. Actually, as soon as you put it in a cocktail, it holds out and it really stands up against all of the other flavors that you put in. So, as soon as I tried it, I was like, "That's a Negroni. That's a Negroni gin every day of the week." Unfortunately, um, Maison Verve do create their own Vermouth, Lacmintini um, Vermouth Royale. So they're both great base products, and they create as a result a really harmonious Negroni. So we have a Negroni à la française is one of our signature serves. So it just it marries really, really well, and it's almost a match made in heaven, if you like.
1: So. Well, I'm going to have to try that. Absolutely. Should we go make one now?
0: We definitely could do. All
1: right, thanks yeah. so much. My pleasure. It was amazing to hear not only about Jamie's progression to brand ambassador, but also to hear about his charitable work. The Martinez was delish as well. you think the Negroni would be our cocktail of the week, but since we had it last week, I wanted to give you another of Jamie's favourites. The Martinez is one of the granddaddies of the cocktail menu, stuck somewhere between a Manhattan and a Martini. No one really knows how it was exactly made in the past, so everyone can put his or her stamp on it now. Here, of course, we begin with G-Vine Gin. Start by adding 50 ml of G-Vine Gin to a mixing glass with cubed ice. Then add in 15 ml of La Quintini Vermouth Royale Rouge. Then 5 ml of Maraschino liqueur. Then one dash of Regan's Orange Bitters. Then stir, stir, stir. Strain into a cocktail glass and garnish with an orange twist. Et voila! Remember, you can find all the recipes for my Cocktails of the Week on alushlifemanual.com where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Next time on a Lush Life podcast, we head to the seaside to sip some Brighton gin. Kathy Caden was running down the beachfront when she decided her hometown needed its own gin. Having just won UK's Best Gin at the People's Drinks Awards, we have to agree she was on to something. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast, the sister of A Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde. All things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Steven Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.